welcome to this episode of uh, Next Stop Transit Tech. We're doing a crossover with Kevin Chambers. So a super special crossover episode with Mobility Lines, which is the podcast for our very good friends at the National Center for Mobility Management. So hi, it's Marcella. And Andrew. Also, this is a doubly special episode because we are actually recording in a studio for the first time. Oh, wow. Well, that's why you sound so good. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, and so we are co-podcasting with Kevin Chambers, who is the technologist for the National Center for Mobility Management. Kevin. Hi, everybody. Yeah, it's really great to be uh, joining the podcast with you and doing this as a co-production. So this is our first go, and I'm excited to see how we could explore the world of transit technology together. Same. And the premise for this episode, uh, where we're talking about the recent transit tech news, is really exciting. NCMM releases their news, current news, from the past, past month. So reading over the list that you just published, Kevin, was really interesting and just brought up a lot of thoughts and conversations since Andrew and I are back into the office in a hybrid kind of sense. I feel like we talked about um, some of the key takeaways, a lot of cool stuff happening. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are very interesting and new twists on like, um, you know, when, when I do these um, these tech updates, I try to pick out the stories that seem like they are they have some relevance to mobility managers. So what are the things that people who want to follow technology in the mobility space and who want to be amplifying mobility in their communities, what do they need to know? What do they need to follow so that they can stay abreast of what's happening in the news and also just get some useful analysis? What are ways to think about autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, Uber and Lyft, you know, what's some of the interesting research that's coming out, what's happening with mobility as a service and micromobility. Sometimes I throw in some micromobility things, but just so that people can could scan through some news and get some perspectives as well as just cutting edge news. So that's what I try to do. And it's definitely not inclusive. I think there's a lot of things happening across the industry, but I try to get some things that have a little bit of uh, snappiness for people so that they can feel like they're learning something. Kevin, one thing for our audience, and then I don't know if you've done this in your own conversations with leaders yet, but how are you defining mobility management? Who is a mobility manager? That's a very good question. I mean, one of the challenges of mobility management is that it has a very squishy definition. I'll speak to it uh, off the cuff and give it my best shot. So I think a mobility manager is somebody who, first of all, focuses on the rider and the customer and tries to address or diminish in some ways the barriers that person may have to getting around. So I think that's one key thing to contrast it. I think maybe in times past, there's been an approach where like, this is the service. This is what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll, it is what it is. And you just need to understand it. And I think mobility management is a approach where, well, let's understand what's going on for this rider and figure out whether our services are, are working well for that rider. There's more of, I think, a willingness to 
express curiosity about the rider's side of the experience and willingness to take a look at it as well. How can we adjust our services to improve the experience that the rider has? I think there's another element in there that I see a lot, which is a lot of interest in coordination and building bridges between different providers or between different domains. So connecting transit to social services, connecting transit to healthcare, so that it's not just about can the person get on the bus, but is the entire user experience of access to healthcare, to access to social services, to access to work, what does that look like? And so I think it's a very sort of a more interdisciplinary approach than maybe in past times we've seen with transit, which is like our lane, no pun intended, <laughs> is to provide buses. We don't think about these other domains. And I think in mobility management, there's a willingness and interest in taking a look at uh, those other domains. So I think that's a, a first stab at it anyways. Pretty good one. Yeah, I feel that definition a lot. Yeah, and feel free to build on it. Again, it really varies a great deal from agency to agency and place to place. And mobility manager to mobility manager, because I think there's mobility managers positioned at wide range of organizations. You know, I'm now seeing mobility managers at state departments of transportation, as well as at transit agencies, as well as at places where we don't normally think of mobility managers being, like at healthcare providers or uh, social service agencies. I think to kind of build on that, a lot of there are a lot of uh, workers who work with people that need to get somewhere and they're so case workers as a more generalized term. And then a significant portion of a lot of their work is getting those folks to whatever service they're trying to go to. So it's something where a lot of people are mobility managers without knowing that they're mobility managers. And right. so community health workers, job access, uh, support staff, really anyone who has cases or clients, one of those terms, and they are providing them access to a suite of services, one of which is to get them to said services. Absolutely. I think that nails it also. Also kind of building on a conversation we were having before we started recording regarding transportation planning specifically, um, you can spend 10 years studying a corridor to do a thing. And at the conclusion of those 10 years, you implement that thing. Let's say it's bike lanes or something. The conditions change. And I think the approach of centering a rider or ultimately your customer is important because you are able to understand how incremental changes can make a huge difference to their experience and to what they need to do. And I, not to like always talk about the COVID, but um, as we can see, like the pandemic, like we had to make really rapid shifts in the way that we did things. So that responsiveness and taking the user experience into account helps with that rapid response. Absolutely. And yeah, and I glad you pulled in the idea of thinking about bike lanes and other kinds of infrastructure besides buses or other transit vehicles, because I think that's another area where mobility managers can think a little bit more outside the box. Because another area of infrastructure that often doesn't get thought about enough, I think, are just like 
well, there's this bus route, but for, you know, there could be a population of people who are just having trouble getting to the bus stop. And that's where um, bike lanes can help to actually like help the user get to a bus stop faster or just a sidewalk. There's a section of blocks where there's not sidewalks to actually get to the bus stop safely. And so people drive or they're not able to get out at all um, because of that. I feel like that kind of thinking about, well, what are the larger contexts that we need to be thinking about that support and enable transit um, is definitely within the purview of mobility managers. To switch gears a little bit to the tech update, there was some really exciting news that you had written up for NCMM going off of our conversation about different modalities and ways that people travel, something that popped up in the news quite a bit was the transit app. So to kick it off, what are your thoughts on the subscription model that they're employing? Yeah, well, this is two pieces of news that are both related and very interesting. And they both involve transit app. So this is a company that makes an app called Transit. And it has been a free app that has but they've also been in the business of partnering with transit agencies around the country to provide sort of, oh, a more branded experience for riders. And they work around the world, really. It's, they're not strictly U.S. It's actually a Canadian-based organization. And I know they're doing work in Europe, Canada, the U.S., and probably elsewhere in the world, but I don't think I could name any of them. So they've been, I think, for, what, a couple of years now, been kind of in startup mode, growing, building out their business. I believe they've partnered with LA Metro is one I can think of off the top of my head, and there's probably many others. But two things that have happened in this news cycle of August is they launched what they're calling the country's first integrated mobility system, connecting all transit options in one app. And then they also have launched a subscription model for cities where the company doesn't have a partnership with a local transit agency. And so those are both really interesting. They're interesting in sort of the technology of like how they're creating their app and creating these sort of environments or ecosystems for mobility. And it also speaks to their business model of how they're trying to stay viable as a company. So I think the subscription model, well, one would just be interesting to see whether this works for them. I mean, it, it seems to imply that there's not enough income just from working with transit agency and maybe advertising. I don't know if they have advertising in their app. I haven't used it for a while. So to me, it indicates that the business model for mobility as a service is still very much in flux and everybody's trying to figure out how to provide these outcomes that we want, which is sort of like at a tap um, access to options while managing all that complexity and having all the expense of the experts and the programmers and uh, the infrastructure to support that infrastructure and complexity. Yeah, it's still a puzzle. That's what I think is interesting to me because I feel like there's a lot of behind the scenes element there of the of the the technology and then how do we keep that technology sustainable that makes me think of to dive into the other half of the transit app conversation about pittsburgh is i believe it was city lab touched on the fact that transit app in pittsburgh have 
created this new program. And so then they dove into where does mobility as a service stand as an industry. And so it hasn't looked good for a lot of uh, private companies on that front. That just speaks to your point, Kevin, about the the funding part of it is still a big question mark, it seems. Yeah, there's a big issue there about who's going to uh, allow this these ecosystems to be sustainable. I think the, the Pittsburgh case is uh, really interesting to me because they're doing several things at once, right? They've pulled together all these different modes. So included in here is Spin, which is a uh, the scooter company, mm-hmm. Healthy Ride, which I believe is bike share, Zipcar for car sharing, Waze for carpooling, and then on top of that, and I don't think I've caught all, all of them, but I caught the ones that are most obvious to me in terms of what those options are. So on top of all those other options, they're also uh, running this pilot called the Universal Basic Mobility Pilot Project. Mm-hmm. And this will give up to 100 local low-income residents monthly transit subscriptions and shared mobility services. So the details of that I think would be really interesting. This is the perfect thing I think that needs to happen. I hope that the results of this pilot get written up in a way that's shareable beyond Pittsburgh because the idea of universal basic mobility and providing that kind of high level of access to low-income people just seems critical. Mm-hmm. And then adding on top of that, well, what what's that user experience like for those folks? Where, so they're getting the access, but then they still have to navigate this transit app system, and they need to be able to figure out how to get on with all the different modes. I think ideally, they're not having to log into each one of these separately. I think that's the basic concept of Moss is that you know, you log in once and you have access to all of these. I would think, especially for services like Zipcar, where they probably need to vet somebody as a driver, there's still extra process that needs to go through. So I'm really curious, like what the level of effort is going to be and what they, I hope they're doing some work to actually like measure the outcomes. Cause I'm delighted that this is happening. I, I, glad Pittsburgh's on it. I would love to see it across the US. I know things like this are happening in Europe, but the transferability of these research efforts in Europe to the US, you know, is hard to gauge. So this is delightful for me. That made me think of how a few of the mass platform companies like Wim or I'm blanking on any of the other ones, but the the ones where it's the private companies who are trying to be the aggregator of all of the modes, they um, have played around for a while, at least with this idea of a subscription, not in the way Transit App has done, but you subscribe to your mobility menu or something like that. And so it's basically you pay 90 euros because it's mostly European pilots, but 90 euros a month and you get transit pass plus bike share, certain number of bike share rides, certain number of TNC trips up to a certain value. And that's one of those where it seemed to me like it would be hard as a consumer to understand the value of that subscription as opposed to paying ad hoc or case by case, trip by trip. 
I think the business model of it for a for-profit company, that's kind of one of the ways that it could have worked if people actually signed up for that. So I'm curious where that middle ground would be if it's through a private company versus if it's publicly funded, which I get the sense is what Pittsburgh's doing. And so therefore, there isn't necessarily the profit motive for folks to join this mobility as a service ecosystem. Yeah, I think that'll be interesting for this universal basic mobility pilot. I believe it seemed like it was a private-public partnership. I think it was the Pittsburgh Medical System, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC. I guess to your point and also to Kevin's point, I'm really interested in how like the adoption is going to look with folks because when you give people access to these services and especially the transit app kind of as a facilitator um, so that you have that one-stop shop, like are people more likely to use them? Is it going to raise awareness around how you can combine these services to access the things that you need access? I echo Kevin's sentiment that I hope that they're tracking a lot of this information and present it as a case study so that it can be replicated by other municipalities across the country because I think it shows a lot of promise. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, and I've thought a lot and read, you know, about a lot of these projects in Europe, the ones you were describing, Andrew, where it's a it's a private model, right? So these are businesses that are hoping to create this ecosystem and sell it through a set of packages. And there's a question of like, well, is that profitable? Is that profitable on its own? Is that profitable without any kind of subsidies? You know, transit in general is not really a profitable endeavor. It's usually a public good. And so it's a stretch for me to see a mobility as a service ecosystem as being profitable unto itself, right? Um, You can have for-profit companies be part of the ecosystem, but the larger effort, it's hard to see how that could be for profit without creating a lot of sort of negative spin-off effects. I'm looking at who is running this and it looks like under behind this Pittsburgh effort is a, a group called the Pittsburgh Mobility Collective and it's led by the city. Looks like also involved is the um, the Port Authority of Allegheny and the Pittsburgh Parking Authority. And so this is the kind of model that I have been most hoping to see is a city or transit agency-led effort where the entity that is most invested in these both social and sort of infrastructural positive outcomes are the ones leading it rather than a, um, a tech company or a, a for-profit where you could have an incentive structure that really could lead to things going awry. So yeah, I'm really hoping that we get to see some, based on the fact that they're doing a small number if just a uh, hundred users first, you know, leads me to think that, oh yeah, okay, this is this is research, and that they're really looking at it. But it does connect for me, Andrew. The thought you were having is like, well, how did those subscription models work? There was a lot of research done about how users experienced these different types of mass schemes, and you know, one thing that I found is that reading them is that. You know, when your entire mental model is based around individual car ownership, as is true for many in Europe and mostly very strong here in the United States, moving to a different mental model where you're figuring out how to navigate 
multiple modes and connect them in one journey, there's a lot to figure out there. Mm-hmm. And and then if you add in, you know, you, that you can't afford to be late in the case of work, or you have kids and you need to be able to also transport your children to school, or you need to be able to return home from work early outside of maybe the regular commute in case your kid is sick or things like that. All that adds a lot of complexity and things that if people aren't able to develop the mental model or see the pathways of like, oh, this is how this scheme is going to handle all these different circumstances, they just want to step back, right? They just want to not do it. And so I'm really curious in this setting, you know, and in this particular Pittsburgh effort, if any of those kind of issues are dealt with and explored. Agreed. And I think also to your point of um, being able to just book everything through one platform and that way folks don't have to go back and forth across different things because that's just one more layer of complexity to deal with. And so you're like, great, I'll take this scooter over to the zip car. And so now I have to get out of the transit app and then open the scooter app, get on there, and then separately sign into the Zipcar some other way. And then so uh, just that can be enough to turn people off. <laughs> I know if I have to download one more app, then I'm highly unlikely to do it and set up another password and all of that. So I can see how folks who are transit skeptical would be even less likely to go through all of those steps. And the idea of being able to have a single place to pay for all of these separate services is immense because I am on the same page as you, Andrew. If I have to download another app or remember a password for like the 50 accounts I have related to like my personal mobility choices, first of all, I forget them. That's a problem. But to have that ability is immense. And I think going back to something you were saying, Kevin, about like what agencies have adopted or worked with Transit App, I know that there's different agencies that work with them in different capacities. So we were thinking about folks who've used their fair payment capabilities, and uh, especially in the lens of transit agencies that work with bike share companies. And even the one agency that we were looking at has only integrated bike share payments through the transit app, but their fare payments are still separate for transit. So while it's like steps in the right direction, it'll be really interesting to see how Pittsburgh is like, we're going to do all of it. Yeah, definitely. There's, I'm really curious. This is exciting, frankly. I mean, I, I looked at it and, you know, I think one thing that I, have gotten a little jaded about is just the overuse and outright abuse of the term MAS. Yes. And uh, to the point where it's like, you know, so-and-so launches <laughs> MAS and I'm like, oh, whatever. You know, I I, I don't believe you. <laughs> In fact, that's just a TNC. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 So, you know, as we delve deeper into this and we, I, I, grasping what they're reaching for here. I really think this is um, exciting. And, you know, looking at the Move PGH website, you know, they say that what they're doing is a a two-year program. And so that really says that they're 
going to test as many things out as they can, and we'll see what happens at the end of two years. So I guess we'll just all need to stay tuned. All right. We're on for two years from now to talk about it. That's right. Exactly. I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to put that in my calendar. Related to the abuse of the term MAS, we are putting together a fact sheet on uh, transit technology buzzwords, and mobility as a service is the top one. So stay tuned for that. Great. You know, one thing you could do to illustrate it is survey other people's definitions Mm. just to show how squishy it is. Mm. Then I can use big data and machine learning to automate an optimized definition. That's right. To disrupt. <laughs> and, and disrupt the definition of MAS. <laughs> I'll innovate it. <laughs> yeah. I got nothing. That was, that was beautiful. That's, I think that's, that's very meta. You know, sometimes I try to sequence the articles in this blog post based on a certain observation. And one is the interesting thing you can say about autonomous vehicles. You know, I think autonomous vehicles, you know, to the uninitiated is like, oh, okay, it's basically a robot on wheels and there's no driver, so it's automated and there's just fewer people involved and that's going to make it more efficient. And, you know, there's a couple articles in the August post here, where they talk about how much people need to be involved. And then parallel to that, there was a number of articles about using technology to enhance or augment the abilities of, of just normal human drivers. So there's an article called a secret weapon for self-driving car startups and uh, that secret weapon is humans. And originally, you know, here's a, the pull quote is, just a few years back, human, remote human assistance was a dirty little secret in this space. Virtually no one talked about it publicly because there was still this facade that these vehicles were just going to be able to drive autonomously everywhere they need to go and do everything that a human would do. And this is a quote by Elliot Katz, a startup called Phantom Auto that uh, provides teleoperation. But he says, now, uh, everyone knows that that's not going to be the case. And that's an interesting statement that everyone now knows that that's not going to be the case, because I don't think everyone knows that. I don't think so either. And, and I, don't, I don't think that the, the conception that's still being put out by Tesla and certainly, you know, in the GWOW uh, news stories is that these are still going to be basically autonomous and they'll just take care of themselves. They'll just uh, go back to their parking spot when they're done. And and I don't think we're anywhere near close to that. So I think within within the industry, there's greater recognition of it. But in I think in the public discourse, that's not true at all. That goes alongside with, there's a number of stories last month about making driving safer by just providing tools to the driver so that they get systems that point out if they're taking their eyes off the road you know you can evaluate where the risks are for drivers and provide sensors that allow them to see things better and this is you know especially valuable for fleets you know when we're talking about tractor trailers or buses where you're dealing with a large vehicle and there's a lot of blind spots you know that's another direction that technology is taking 
And that's sort of car or technology as co-pilot rather than actual pilot. And, you know, when wherever we're looking at technology, we want to be doing a cost-benefit analysis. And um, with these systems, I think we're talking about things that are ready to go now. Um, and the costs are significantly less. And, um, and the benefits in terms of decreased risk, which can lower um, insurance rates, you know, th- these things could pay them for themselves potentially, you know, much sooner, if not right away, than an autonomous vehicle could. I'm recalling uh, our episode on automated vehicles with the team from AECOM's Automated Bus Consortium. And a conversation that we had was about being really careful and saying automated versus autonomous. Because Suzanne, uh, the person that we were interviewing, was very aware that when you say autonomous, it gives off that picture of, you know, there's not a person involved. So she is always very calculated in making sure that she gets her point across, that she is talking about automated vehicles where it's an assistance, but the human aspect is still very much there. But I definitely agree that when you talk about the general public's perception, it's very Jetsons-like and futuristic, but I agree, we're not quite there yet. That made me think of um, a podcast I listened to, so this is my chance to plug all podcasts that I ever listened to, but there's one, it's called The Secret History of the Future, and so it was about the Mechanical Turk, where it's it looked like it was a machine playing chess, but really there was someone underneath manipulating the robot's um, quote-unquote arms or movements, and so then that is why the AI behind Amazon's whole system is also called the Mechanical Turk, because there are actually people who are doing all of these AI things. And so that seems to just feed into that whole idea of all of these automated, you know, machine learning, intelligent computer, smart devices. The tool behind them all is the human doing the work in the end. Yeah, you know, I would add on also, like, uh, now that you're citing things that are interesting, you know, I one thing that I think about when it comes to transit technology is when we're looking at these things, for example, automated vehicles, which do have a place. And I want to be clear, it's like, I don't think automated vehicles have no place in transit. I do think, you know, especially now, you know, some of these low speed shuttles, I think can, in specific contexts, can be really useful. But those uh, use cases, I think, are fairly limited at this point. And, you know, there's a lot of cases where you just need a person in in the vehicle no matter what. Mm-hmm. And it might as well be a driver, you know, and if the cost of having the person is the same, you know, adding in all this technology for automation of the movement of the vehicle doesn't actually add a lot of value. One article that um, I think of a lot that I really enjoyed from 2018 uh, is a a blog post by uh, Jarrett Walker. This was, um, I believe, shortly after he had a, a, a little tiff with Elon Musk on Twitter. He wrote a blog post that says, uh, Elon Musk's tunnel, it doesn't scale, so it doesn't matter. And I think that's true of a lot of things where there's this sort of gee whiz, you know, glow to a technology. 
But if something doesn't really allow allow the technology to be used at large scale, it's not something to ignore, but it's not necessarily where uh, transit agencies should be putting their energy. Agreed. Yeah, and I think that's a good chance for us to say as much as we've kind of railed against mm-hmm. hyping technology, we, like you, agree that a lot of these are tools. And so it's just understanding how to think about them and process where such tools make the most sense and they provide the most value. So I guess it would be the don't use a hammer to screw something in and don't use a screwdriver to hammer a nail kind of idea, but bigger. Yeah, like technology is a tool to further your agency's goals. Through this conversation, I was thinking about the, in my past life, a prior implementation was um, driver technology to improve safety generally and distracted driving, speeding, that kind of stuff. And the program, I believe, was quite successful. They were able to provide corrections to drivers as they were learning how to drive. Um, Something that we were talking about earlier is the driver shortage. So it was helpful Mm -hmm. for that, like, ongoing education um, because driving a bus is very different than driving a car. Um, And a lot of the drivers that we were working with were new to the industry. And I think looking, like you were saying, Andrew, at technology as a tool and all the different components of a broad technology like automation um, can have a lot of value depending on what your ultimate goals are as like a transit agency manager, as an operations manager, and maintenance. I know we briefly spoke with someone who was bringing uh, machine learning into fleet maintenance, and that was a really interesting conversation because – his value proposition was this software and hardware for your fleet can save you a lot of money in preventative maintenance and from road calls. If you're an agency that really struggles with that, that could be a potential tool for the future. Yeah, that's a great example of something that is behind the scenes. It's not flashy, but if you have a good tool that is able to predict or identify, well, hey, you know, these are areas where we're seeing connections between where you're having your road calls and what the picture looked like for that vehicle ahead. And then we can use that to project out and go, oh, this is maybe some of the things you should do preventatively uh, going forward to keep that from happening down the road. Road calls are incredibly disruptive to agencies. Mm -hmm. The level of resources you need to have and and the level of disruption and that it just has operationally to say nothing of how it affects the riders. That kind of stuff is, I think, highly valuable. The other topic that we had uh, that we had really pulled out uh, was talking about equitable deployment of electric buses. Marcel, this had stood out to you if you want to kind of talk about why it did. Oh, sure. So in your tech update, there was an article about a professor in Utah that was developing an open source tool to kind of juggle the two often competing goals of electrification and also operational efficiency. And electrification in the case of spreading the love of zero-emission buses across um, different routes in a system. And I thought it was fascinating because 
at the end of the day, electric buses still have some constraints that agencies have to grapple with. But you don't want to run your electric vehicles on the same routes and make sure that you're serving your communities equitably and especially those that have been disproportionately impacted by externalities of highways, of urban renewal. So I thought that was a really cool tool. And I'm also excited to see how that turns out and how the researcher's guidebook comes out so that agencies can adopt the model for their own spaces. It's a model that I think will serve a lot of agencies well, just because it's a complex problem. And I think there is data out there to help make those choices, even if it's not the 100% complete picture, it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think it's one of the questions that I'm so glad is is becoming central in the provision of transit services, you know, because there's multiple things that are really getting a lot of attention now with transit. One is transit itself, even as it is right now, as a climate change mitigation tool, even with diesel buses, and it can be used to address historic and longstanding inequities in our society. And then you can bring these new technologies in to address both of those, right? Electric buses are a perfect example of that. But you could really see how all the ways in which the technology gets to the people who already enjoy a lot of benefits. Relatedly, I mean, that's a lot of my concern about Moss is that often Moss is portrayed as people who already have a lot of transit options getting even more of them. Mm -hmm. You know, I did post the article about the research, but I didn't actually look at what all the variables were in her model. But it would make sense that we would want to target communities that are already experiencing a lot of air pollution and use electric fuels as one way to reduce that. A diesel bus isn't adding to whatever already existing pollution is in their environment from industry, from highways, or just the way the wind blows and they have to deal with it. So one thing I generally say about technology is it's a force multiplier. And it's really in the human design and where you aim that technology that's going to decide whether it actually achieves your outcomes or the outcomes that you've set out. To your point, Kevin, about the electric buses and the equitable deployment of them, as well as, or maybe Andrew said this, actually, about equitable deployment of technology, I think the thread um, between Moss and the electric bus articles, as far as ensuring that technology is not just being implemented like willy-nilly, for lack of a better word, but rather very intentionally thought out. So it's not something, like you said earlier, a force multiplier for the inequities that already exist in our society. So I think I really appreciated that equity was talked about and very intentionally thought out in a couple of the articles that you had included in the tech update, because I think that's a really critical piece as we move through the technology world that we have I think stated a couple times, is moving very quickly. Um, you can't just jump in because you'll end up perhaps unintentionally compounding the inequity that exists in our society today. 
there are different tools to kind of take a look at the like environmental burden on certain communities. And the first one that came to my mind was the EPA's EJ tool. They have an environmental justice mapping tool that allows you to essentially see a report card on a community, look at their health outcomes, and they tie a lot of different data sets together to paint a picture of how burdened a community is. And I think something that technology and just the sheer amount of data that we're collecting through transportation processes and all of these other, I guess, reporting mechanisms is bringing them together. And I think that's one really beautiful thing about this project, if I can say that it's beautiful. And yeah, I think it's going to provide a lot of value to a lot of people. But I also want to look and take a deeper dive into what the metrics are behind the model. I'm scanning through the slides of a presentation right now. It definitely looks like <laughs> it's focused on, you know, what are the emissions that a bus provides? What's the, what are the local conditions? It looks like pulling in EPA data and definitely focusing on air quality as the central outcome and really getting down into the nitty gritty of like, okay, how much is this going to make things better? Does it get into um, tailpipe versus total emissions? So wherever the energy is produced in the first place? It's a good question. It is a good question. I don't have enough, based on my cursory review, <laughs> don't have enough to answer that. So we had an interesting conversation about that. In uh, We were recently in Missoula, Montana, talking to Mountain Line. And so they were talking about how it's difficult to say zero emissions because I would say it's impossible to control where your energy source is coming from. And so you can work with your utility, work on microgrids or whatever, but ultimately you are part of a much larger community uh, that has a larger power supplier. And so that's something you have to deal with. And so focusing on tailpipe emissions is certainly... That's the within the agency's control, immediate control factor of it. Uh, so just kind of another thing for people to think about is there's the difference between those, but just kind of know what you can and can't control. And Yeah, and depending on where you are in the country, your electricity is coming from any number of sources, right? So some parts of the country have more access to wind and solar and hydro. And then other parts of the country are simply more dependent on natural gas and coal just due to historical infrastructure investments, as well as just how windy or sunny their particular environments are. I'll take this chance for some shameless plugging of NCAT products. So Kevin actually wrote for us a white paper on the framework for technology decision making. And so the idea is to be very deliberate about what you're doing and not chase the shiny object, but actually think through your goals and what you want to achieve and then how to get there. There's that. And then also we are currently working on a guidebook about using technology to advance equity and justice and how to go about that. So keep an eye out for that one, but also read Kevin's white paper. Thank you, Kevin, for collaborating with us on this podcast. We're excited to be able to have this conversation every couple of months. And I think it's 
fun to get to talk about these bigger ideas that are out there and then how they can affect the transit agencies that we're working with through our respective technical assistance centers. We're excited to talk to you again about new updates soon. I'm really excited that I could do this with you. And I I think this is um, the start of something that is going to be fun and I think hopefully useful to the folks listening where we really get to talk about technology and the different aspects of it, you know, in a more natural way where we kind of get to look at multiple facets and people get to get a sense of some of the complexities of technology that don't really easily come across in a news story or an article or research. For those of us who work in transit technology every day, I think there's a lot of things we want to be able to say in a broad way. And being able to use this context to touch on some news stories and then use those as sort of starting points to think about how technology works in the transit environment is just really exciting to me. So I'm glad we're kicking this off and I'm looking forward to more of it. 